Welcome to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast, featuring the best literature from the Caribbean region and diaspora. My name is Malaika Booker, and I am the curator and host for this podcast series. As I record this introduction sitting on my couch for episode five, I am holed up in my house, practicing social distancing and self-isolating along with the global community and we're all enduring a lockdown due to COVID-19. I'm looking out of the window at the empty streets and the kind of silence as we all participate in this lockdown. I'm hoping that this podcast provides something of a respite from the looming bigger affairs that we're enduring at the moment. Today I'll speak to two writers with roots in Trinidad, the novelist Monique Ruffrey. I'll speak to Monique about the act of writing and her new novel, The Mermaid of Black Conch. I was fortunate to be able to attend her online launch of the book which was just released in March. We'll also be hearing the poetry of Lauren K. Elaine, who resides in the USA. So in 2019, we saw the inaugural launch of Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival, the first literary festival entirely devoted to Caribbean literature to take place in New York City. And Lauren K. Allen was one of the poets who read. And we're really privileged to be able to listen to a recording from that festival last year as she reads from her new People Tree Press collection. So we'll begin in conversation with Monique Roffrey. Monique Roffrey was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and mostly educated in the UK. She's the author of six books, five novels, and a memoir. Three of her novels are set in Trinidad and the Caribbean region. This award-winning Trinidadian-born British writer moves effortlessly across genres that include novels, essays, a memoir, and literary journalism. Her novels have been translated into five languages and shortlisted for several major awards, in 2013, her novel, Archipelago, won the OCM Bocus Award for Caribbean Literature and was shortlisted for the Orion Award in 2014. The White Woman on the Green Bicycle, 2009, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize in 2010 and the Encore Award in 2011. House of Ashes, published in 2014, was shortlisted for the Costa Fiction Award in 2015 and also longlisted for the OCM Bocus Award. Monique has also written essays that have appeared in the New York Review of Books, The Independent, Was a Theory, and Caribbean Quarterly, to name a few. She's a lecturer on the MFA in Creative Writing of Manchester Writing School, Manchester Metropolitan University and tutor for the Norwich Writers' Centre. Her book, as I said, The Mermaid of Black Conch, is out now. 
as we speak, just had its book launch online because of this pandemic. And just some quotes about the book, really, before we go into the interview. Jess Sturm Coons from the Mechanics Institute in her review in February this year writes that the prose is musical, elegantly poetic and laps of the senses. I found myself entranced by the style and fluency as much as the fantasy. And Debbie Jacob from Newsday in March wrote, her characters and conflict are complex Yet in many ways, this is a plot-driven novel. She also goes on to say that this is a novel where the ancient world clashes with the new world and offers fresh ways to examine creolization. Okay, um, good afternoon. I'm here with the amazing, internationally renowned, prize-winning um, fiction writer, Monique Roffrey, and we're going to talk about her new book, The Mermaid or Black Conch. Yep. Um, so we're going to talk about that. But before we talk about that, hi, Monique. Hello, Malika. Um, Monique and I work together at Man- Manchester Metropolitan University, and so we're grabbing some time in this wonderful, spacey drama room. So the ambience that you're hearing in the background of the students, and I thought I would grab her. Um, how are you? How are you feeling, Monique? I'm very excited because I'm flying to Trinidad tomorrow morning and I am so excited about going home. I really, really like, like, I haven't been this keen to get home for a long time, but I really am. So right. I'm, I'm good. And it's the end of term, as you know. We're, we're all fighting off bugs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been a hard, it's been a hard term. Monique, you're a prolific writer. At least every two or three years there's a new book. I wanted to talk to you about your writing practice, about about your production. I call you a prolific productionist. Um, and I want to ask you how you go about writing, how you move from one book to the other. A lot of people talk about they finish the book and then they, they, they stagnate for a little while and it takes a little while. But you seem to get on the horse. And next, I, I watch your Instagram, I watch your social media, and you're there working on the other book. How does that work? Well, it's interesting because I think there's two... two things going on here. One, I don't have babies or children or husbands or family. So that takes up a lot of time. So I am one of these female writers who is like, writing has been my um, thing, you know, that's what I really, really wanted to do. And I remember very early on um, thinking, oh my God, am I going to have babies? And I just wanted to write. Anyway, that was a long time ago. So there's, there's, I have a lot of time to write and that feels right and good for me. But also I think it's a bit of a spoken mirrors because there were seven years between my first novel and The White Woman on the Green Bicycle. That's a big break. Mm-hmm. And so I did, I did write a novel in that time, which never got published. I do have unfinished manuscripts and unfinished books. And then what seems to happen is something like The Tryst, for example, I started when I was 37. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't want to abandon it, but I published it when I was 52. So it looks as though I've, I've been very prolific, but actually there have been breaks and there has been one book in particular. So if I hadn't published a tryst, then you would see a more accurate representation of what might be going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. because I'm publishing next year. And for example, we sold the Mermaid book to People Tree in 2018. Okay. 
So that's two years. So if I hadn't published a trust, you would have seen a big gap. <coughs> so there is, it, it looks like I'm, um, I am prolific, but I think the gaps have been papered over by books that have been longer projects. Okay, okay. So let's talk about this book, um, The Mermaid or Black Conch. Is it Conch? Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying that right. Um, it's a love story. Um, yeah. It's it's interesting because um, I'm working with a lot of students who are doing this not this course called Remake Remodel, and a lot of them are doing remaking of fairy tales, and, mm. and mermaids have come up, The Little Mermaid. Um, and also in this book, and um, this book is really fascinating because a mermaid is discovered off the Caribbean, um, this island, little island in the Caribbean. And, um, and, uh, and then there's the whole Caribbean myth of Mammy Water, um, which you refer to in the book. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about Mammy Water. This long question was to come to tell us a bit about this this myth of man, mammy water, well, this it, folklore. Um, the folk, she this my mermaid isn't mammy water. She's um, but mammy water is a is an African deity, isn't she? And um, Mama Delo, these these are, are deities that come from a more Yoruba tradition. But I think in in the Caribbean, she's a default mermaid. Like when she arises, she's a black mermaid. She's somebody comes from an African tradition. So, you know, obviously I'm a white woman, so I didn't want to step into that particular space, mm-hmm. even though I'd been dreaming of mermaids. And so mermaids do come from different parts of the Caribbean. They come from Cuba, they come from Tobago, they come from Guyana, they're all over the place. And also painters, art, then artwork, like you wouldn't believe, from Cariacou, Canute So when I was dream- so Mummy Water is like a default Caribbean mermaid. She's like people always. She comes up a lot. She's a, a Caribbean mermaid, but I knew that as a white woman, I didn't really want to step into that. Um, all of that. Bring. She's not. She's a. She's an. You know. She's an African mermaid. She's not. My, she's not for me to necessarily write about. So, but I. At the same time, I was dreaming mermaids. I had a strong visions of mermaids. And, and so, so this, 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 this book developed out of these dreams or this yeah, fascination, this obsession. Yeah. So, so you're dreaming mermaid, you're sitting at your desk, yeah. what happens? Well, so, the, so these mermaid dreams were coming to me and then I spent some time in Tobago where every year they have a fishing competition and, um, and they often string up their fish. And, you know, this looks like a lynching. You know, and these are big animals that are like um, like a side of beef. They're like rucks of beef. And then, you know, you could, it's not a big leap to go from stringing up uh, a fish to stringing up a human to stringing up a woman, a merwoman. And it just started to develop into, obviously, this is a bigger story coming from the Caribbean. And, and then somebody caught a marlin and chopped off its head. And then there was um, this person, and then somebody ran into the fish depot and shoved the marlin head on their head mm. and were like playing Olmas and running around and scaring people, and there was fishy blood. And he was like a merman upside down. Right. And it just wasn't hard to bring all of this together into like, I have mm. permission, I'm going to write this mermaid because mm. she's not leaving me alone. Right. And then I, I found the Aikaia myth coming from Cuba, and she, of course, is a punished cursed mermaid isolated and trapped lonely da 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 and all of a sudden every you know how it is you know mm. something just gains momentum mm-hmm. traction on its own mm-hmm. <coughs> and before long and then I talked to Anthony Joseph mm. 
Because I had heard Robert Antoni speaking at Bocus, and he was, I think it was Davina Trace, and he was reading in this kind of monkey language that he'd made up. And so initially I was very wedded to finding a mermaid voice or a fish language. And then that brought up the whole subject of language. If you've been in the sea for thousands of years, would she have remembered her people? Would she have remembered her language? And then, so with Anthony, I was really wedded to this idea that the whole book would be the point of view of the mermaid. And could I keep that up? And how would that look? And actually it was Anthony who persuaded me that that would be too much and then he pointed me to Neruda's, um, no, to the loneliest man in the world. And he pointed me to other mermaid stories. So early, early on, as you know, with anything you start that you know has got a lot of power, um, I just had like a profusion of ideas, mm-hmm. which all of them have to be tested out before you can go, OK, now I'm, I'm off. Right, right. And even with the mermaid voice today, I think to myself, OK, that's a risk. Because I'm sure lots of poets are going to read that and go, you know, they're either going to go, you know, yeah. And what Monique is referring to, just some some references. Um, Anthony Joseph is a, a Trinidadian British novelist. Yeah. Um, and Robert Antoni is a Trinidadian novelist as well. Um, and interestingly enough, I was actually going to ask you about that scene, because you put that scene in the book where the man has put the one of the characters head on, has put yeah. the head on his shoulders and it's kind of plain playing mass, yeah. we're playing carnival with this with this yeah, running sure. around with yeah. this um, with this with this mask on his head which is which is really interesting, this fish mask, but it's a mask in itself and, mm. and the and the grotesqueness of it, but the the actual life light of it being in the Caribbean in a place where people understand carnival and making masks. Mm. Could you kind of brought that up and kind yeah. of kick that question to there you the go. <laughs> it's out. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask you that was fascinating. So this 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 mermaid is, is a very tragic story about her becoming a mermaid, which I'm not going to reveal because we want you to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was fascinated by is there's this whole scene where she's caught by these um, by these American fishermen. There's this fishing competition, and she's caught. And there's a conflict in the boat. Um, between the, the native who who are, say, who are thinking in their head, this we need to put her back in the water. Yeah, and these men, she not to for catch at all. Put that back, fish yeah, right back in the sea. Yeah. yeah, put it back. You know, God put it back. And mm. then there's the Americans who are, um, oh my God, well the son is not like that, but mm. the father who is like, this is going to make me money. Mm. I'm going to be on National Geographic, mm. and, and that that was an interesting complex point of view because the men as well one of them was like I need to put her back but he sort of he can't help but you know finding her I mean I wanted to have her mm. be extremely powerful Mm. so the feminine like like a goddess because Mm. mermaids are an image pre-Christian before Mm. we decided on one god Mm. right we had many gods we were all pagans and this is where Mummy water comes from, you know, a time of many spirits, many gods and goddesses. So I wanted their reaction to her to be phenomenal. Like, she is a phenomenon. And so, I mean, I think at one point I say everyone wanted to fuck her. They couldn't stop their sexuality from, you know, rising up when they saw her. 
they felt they were blaspheming when they saw her, they should put her back, mm. that this was all wrong. Mm. And so that there's this excitement that's very male projected onto her. And she is obviously um, a very strange creature mm. and, um, and furious and angry and powerful, but caught... And so the whole thing, I think the the local men are like in awe of her and respect her and, and actually have come across, they understand her. Do you know what I mean? There's, yeah. they, they, they like get this creature out of the boat because she's either going to bring us Obey bad luck. Um, she's, you know, mm. she's, a, she's not to be caught. Yes. Get her off the boat. Yeah. But of course, you know, it brings in the whole structure of the capitalist, the white man who's Who's boat? And the power dynamic. Yeah, power yeah. dynamic. And the old man is like, no, fuck, man. This is this is gonna earn me. This is I'm gonna make me famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. And then you know they hood her, they gag her. She's been wounded, and then there's a big scene about them get carrying her back and mm-hmm. stringing her up. And, and so that was, that was a fascinating scene. I want to stay in. I want to stay in these two scenes actually because I think they were very very powerful scenes the the first the initial um, response of finding her of seeing what she was the response of the the, the capitalist and the the capitalist kind of response Mm. the 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 local response of of being imbued in all the culture um, and then the the male kind of patriarchal overriding response, the sexual response, mm. the complications there on the boat and how men were wave, they were wavering back and forth within how to deal with her mm. and the, the big uncomfortableness that's there. But then there's the scene when she comes into the harbour mm. and, then, and then there's the scene of all these men gathered around her almost like, 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 this, like she's this produce and and it, 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 what, what's interesting for me reading it, I was very, very that was, that that scene really wounded me. I found it very moving as a woman, um, you know, as a black woman as well, because it, the connotations of slavery and of being on a kind of dock and being mm. examined. Mm. But interestingly, not examined in terms of the fresh, but the, the, the there was there was some bits of feeling like ownership, like we've got this. Um, mm. There's this sexual kind of. In, Things come up, and there was there, the, some, some of the, the the fishermen disappeared because they were totally uncomfortable. They were like, "I need to get out." I believe it. Yeah, I, I want nothing this, to do with this. Nothing to do with this. I don't want no bad luck on me. Yeah, but the the in that moment, I, I felt that none of these men felt revered this one revered her and yeah. none of them felt this uncomfortableness with the fact that they've got something so. Beautiful. It was almost like I mean, he kept thinking about her, about trophies, and mm. you know. Um, tell me about writing that scene. Gosh, um, well, so there's a very famous poem um, called "The Mermaid and the Drunks" by Neruda, and actually, the the novel was initially going to be called, and it's like "Stranger to Tears." She did not weep. Stranger to this, she had no clothes. This, that, and the other, and she's. It's about a woman who walks into a bar from the river. And she's she is uh, violated, and she is um, mistreated and abused, and cigarette butts and all of that. And that has been a poem that's been rattling around in my consciousness for a long time. So there's an element of that kind of freak, you know, the freak show, and how easy it would be for us all to dehumanise something that's only half human. So 
she's not then human. You know, if she's only half human, then we can get away with seeing her as a as something else. So we can treat her like we like. I mean, this is in the seventies, so maybe still less of a feminist society, more of a patriarchal society. But it was something to do with, like you said, this thing about slavery and lynching and, you know, fish. Where do we, you know, I remember seeing a picture by Hemingway and um, there were like five marlin hung upside down. And they were as big as you and me. You know, they were big fish. And then, we, you know, the whole thing was doing tricks with my mind and I wanted to do the same tricks with the book. And... um, and so, yeah, she is a prize, a trophy, a commodity, mm. only half human, a woman. All these things do devalue her mm-hmm. <clears throat> very quickly. And, um, but she, you know, but then there's a bigger story behind who she is. Yes, so yes, yes. I really wanted to pack it all in. Yeah, you, you and, know. You, and you sure do. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk about the poetic, the structure now of the book. Okay. You know? I wanted to talk about the, 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 you know, you started, you started moving into that direction, talking about trying to find a language for her. Yeah. Um, so you have this, you have her have this kind of poetic structure, this quite, this quite lyrical structure of mm. telling her story and giving back story, and then you have this, this, this diary um, of the other, of the other characters. We, yeah. We're seeing the David, story, yeah. David particularly, who is also the love interest. We see, yeah. you've got to read this book, but David, the love interest, who we're seeing this story, and yeah. they met on Usually, which we're not going to talk about, because I do want you to yeah. write about. Um, and, and then you have the, the, so, and then sometimes, the, some bits of the text kind of are superimposed around each other, because she will refer to into them from her perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then David might start or might continue writing yeah. in his diary from his perspective. So you get these really intricate perspectives at the same time as you get you sure. the story is unfolding. Yeah. Um, so just yeah, just talk to me about well, the structure. Okay, well that's quite it's an old trick actually. I mean, I think I'm teaching it now on reading novels one, which is a Beryl Bainbridge is a three hander, three first person points of view. Where if you start, I mean, it's the same as in life. If you heard about something, like one thing, mm. but you heard it about it from three different people, mm. you start to build a much more um, composite picture of the truth mm. of what of what happens, and it starts to become more credible. Mm. And so this is what um, I did with the tryst, the same thing, a three-hander. Um, and I think it brings the story alive more. But yeah, so we have this kind of omniscient narrator who I see as an older elder of the village, a black woman who who we can trust, a reliable... I, I love her name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, who, the mermaid? No, I love the, 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 um, the woman who, no, it's not the, the woman who, it's Cece. Oh, Cece, no, yeah, it not, could be Cece. Someone like Cece yeah, yeah. is saying, you know, there was this some um, time in the 70s when the time of the mermaid, mm-hmm. you know, when there was a story. Mm-hmm. And at the end when, you know, have you read to the end? No, I haven't read to the end. Okay, yet, the end, so. is, I, one of my favourite scenes is the end, I might actually read it, um, where um, just before the hurricane and, I mean, I've had such fun with the magical realism. It's such a pleasure to write this book. But anyway, um, but it's almost like CC, you know. There's a there's an omniscient narrator which, who is um, older, has the memory, has the lore, is reliable, and is kind of bringing the reader in in the way a Caribbean person would say, 
you know, let me tell you a story. Yeah. And then there is um, uh, epistolary aspect to the book where David is finally, as an old man, also writing about what happened Mm -hmm. and trying to tell his version of events as a kind of love interest, fisherman, person, like this has been the biggest thing that's ever happened to him, a life lesson, Mm -hmm. all of these things. And then I wanted them, so the mermaid also gets her story. She's learning language and Mm -hmm. she puts her pieces into the book as well. So, you know, you just have to take a leap of faith if you want to do something like this mm-hmm. and you just have to go you know this is what authorship is about you you do what you want to do mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work then people your critics will tell you mm-hmm. you will get the feedback but mm-hmm. so I'm still it has it's not out yet and my biggest fear really was the mermaid's voice because obviously I'm not a poet <coughs> it's um free it's kind of like free verse yeah. you know it's just a voice coming out and I wanted to, you know, just leave it, leave it as much as possible, and not try too hard for, for poetry. But it has its. But she's learning to speak, and then that brings up the whole issue of language because one of the characters is deaf. How does he uh, um, claim language? How does the mermaid claim her language back? And then it brings up everything. It brings up the white woman who also speaks in dialect, mm-hmm. and she's trying to pass on language to the mermaid, but she's self-conscious that she doesn't speak. English, English in books, and the mermaid eventually learns about three three languages, and then um, she learns sign language. She learns she learns parlance. She learns a, a local parlance. And then she learns she can speak. In, she learns English from books, and then um, yeah, so it's complicated. Yeah, it's a com- it's a very complicated love story. Yeah, um, with the with with the kind of sea and the back the backdrop of this village. Yeah. as this kind of hinterland where this all happens, this yeah. space. Um, what was your best, what was your favourite thing about writing this book? Oh, what a nice question. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God, that's a really... It's, I mean, I, 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 went, I think the magical, real aspect of it mm-hmm. is um, something that I do in every book. It's like my thing. I love mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. I love... Um, going okay it's going to rain fish mm. I'm going to get away you're either on board or you're not mm-hmm. and then if you're still reading by then I've got you mm. and um, and I think my first ever agent um, said to me memorably oh um, he said something like oh magical realism isn't popular isn't commercially viable and and actually that's all I've done in the last 20 years <laughs> and I feel very proud of the fact that um I mean, this is my most magical real book, mm-hmm. and it really works for me. I'm really happy to write, be writing. I showed it to Charmaine Lovegrove actually at one point, and I thought, I wonder if she'll go for it. And she didn't buy it, but she was like, "Wow, I can really see where you're coming from," you know. Right. And that's all this takes, and that's mm-hmm. that's what this book offers. It's like you have to, like you, you could just stop at the door with this book and just mm-hmm. go, "I'm not interested because I don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in this book." Mm-hmm. There's something really beautiful and, and believable about her and the ancientness, and there's something believable about um, she changes. She changes in, in the book in a very dramatic and very very dramatic and very visceral 
way that includes, um, Monique does this very well, it includes the, the colours, the, the smells, the stench, the, of, of how you would move from one, one state of being to another. I don't want to give too much away in the book by saying what, but you have to read it to find out. Um, usually, I usually have do the interviews and have a, a, a different person leading, but I felt I wanted to change up the format a bit, and today I wanted Monique to end with a, a reading a, one of a, a bit from this book. Okay, yeah. oh, let me have a look. Um, I think I might read from the from the scene that I loved writing. I mean, I'm a real believer that, and I say this to all my students. You know, writing. I don't. I'm not a believer in. You know, oh, writing's so painful. Ah, you know, the drama of writing. I think if it's too painful, stop writing. You're writing the wrong book, or it's not for you. But we should love it. We should have fun writing. We should have. We should really like doing it. <coughs> Let me have a look if I can find the scene which I enjoyed writing. Um. <laughs> I mean, even this is some kind of love affair. You've been fucking a fish. <laughs> he laughed loudly and with content. Maybe I'll read that. No, hang on. I mean, you've been fucking a fish. <laughs> you know, it's like there's so many bad characters in this towards the end. Okay. Let me see if I can get this in. Every man, Jack, bring his boat in. The bay was empty, but for big dark waves. CC was still serving rum, and a lot of men gathered in there. That's when I saw them Yankee men again, both of them drinking a rum around midday before the storm hit us. My blood turned to ice at the sight of them. They were sitting quiet, quiet at a table, the old white man and his son. No tourists arrived that time of year. The place was different then. August is wet season. Hurricane season had started. Life asked if it was them, and I nodded. A man who loves a woman enough can do the right thing. That's when I knew how much life loved Miss Rain. He already done spring me and the mermaid from jail. Next thing, he move in on those men so cool. Life is a mandingo warrior type black man, the kind white people frayed. He only have to set up his face to frighten them away. He have a way about him, a confidence from how he think. This time he didn't act no part. It was too easy to frighten them fellas. Can I join you? He asked, sitting down, before one of them said no. The younger one began to turn even more white. David, he motioned to me, bring up a seat. I sat down too, so we had them cornered. Behind them is only rain, and in front of them is only us. Life asked them direct what they were doing in Black Conch. He was chewing on a matchstick. He watched them real curious. The old man say it's none of our goddamn business. And he'd tell us to leave them alone. Life eyebrows shoot up. Alone, he said. Shoo, move away, the old man repeated. Shoo, life say, real cool. Leave us in peace. We are here on some business. What kind of shoe business is this then, life asked. The old man sat his cap straight and glared at life like he might even take him outside if it wasn't raining so much. Old man does be bad. Oh, fuck with an old man in truth. Life laughed, and he picked at his teeth. He looked at the old man, and then his ship at our son, and he said out straight, You still looking for that mermaid? The old man's face screw up, and he say something that sounded like a cuss word. But still life play him real cool. David, he said to me, tell him. Tell him about how you saved that poor woman. How it's you who cut she down and rescue her. 
I swear those white men almost fainted. Life smiled big and slow. Tell them that. It was you, stammered the old man. You stole our mermaid? Boy, even now, just the thought of them make my blood turn cold. And I said proud, yeah, I cut them. I cut her down. Goddamn motherfucker, the old man shouted. You stole our property. I'll have you arrested and locked up for good. I would have cuffed the old man to the ground if life hadn't stopped me. Cece was behind the bar. She gave him a look. She gave a look to one of her sons to say get them out before she killed them. Ain't lie. That younger man looked ready to shit his pants. Life raised his hand as if to say no one move, no one run them out, no one kill them. Life was, going, was playing a longer game. That is why I know how much he loved Miss Rain. He was not so bound up with Aikaia. He, more used, he was more able to use his mind, more able to play chess with them fellas. He was doing it out of love for the woman he loved and for his son. David, he say, tell your gentlemen, tell these gentlemen your story. And so I tried as best I could to tell how she had changed back, how her tail had fallen off. I put her back in the sea. How she, before I put her back in the sea, how she began to walk and how Miss Rain teach her black conch language and how she started to settle back in and how she was able to read the skies and talk to trees and know about cassava bread and how she came from Cuba and how she was cursed by her sister in long ago. But I didn't tell them about the marriage part, about the fish rain and how she tried to hang herself. The old man listened, but he wasn't ready to hear anything, like he was only waiting for me to finish. I don't give a damn flying fucking rat's ass about no goddamn curse from where the fuck you say she came from. I don't care if she came from Cuba, Venezuela or Timbuktu. I don't give a fuck if she can walk, talk, play the violin or do the hula, okay? We stared at him, shocked. Skip it. Nice story. Boo-hoo, he mocked us. And then she repeated that she was that she was theirs. They had caught her with the license they brought right here in the bar to fish in these waters and keep what they caught. They were taking her back to Miami and that, that same day. When I stammered out, but she's human, the old man slammed his hand on the table. No, she isn't human at all. Not the last time I heard, not the last time I heard that she was talking about turning back into a fish. Man could murder man. I could have murdered that old man with my hands, then and there, but life held me back. He was still playing them best he could. Life said she was not for them to capture again, for them to take away or keep or sell. That set the old man off, damning us all to hell and back. He hoped the storm would blow us all away, that's what he said. He caught her fair and square, and he could do what he damn well pleased. Thank you very much. Here Pleasure. <laughs> Reading from the mermaids of that cunt. We could have gone on and on about this book, but you know, time. Thank you very much, Malika. Thank you, Malika. It was really good to sit in Manchester Metropolitan um, University and speak to Monique. Um, I was struck by the fact that um, writing novels is such a solitary act, and yet still. Monique was able to reference other writers she was in conversation with. The bouncing of ideas with the novelist Anthony Joseph. The influence of ideas from the novelist um, Robert Antoni. And most interesting for me as a poet is how the impact of Pablo Neruda's poem 
on her work on this beautiful, beautifully rendered novel. We're stuck indoors for a few more weeks at least, and um, people are scrambling for things to do to fill their time. I would say The Mermaid of Black Conch is a very good read. And also, I saw the academic Emily Zobel on her social media is engaged in reading the book, but also encouraged her child to draw pictures of their versions of mermaids and what they thought more mermaids would look like. So while she was reading, she used the book cover to inspire and um, her child to be creative. So there's something that, you know, I'll pass along. The writer Lauren K. Alain will be reading poems from her new book. So 2019 saw the inaugural Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival launch. Um, it's the first literary festival entirely devoted to Caribbean literature in New York City. Lauren K. Alain was one of the poets featured on the program and we're privileged to be able to listen to a recording of her live reading at the festival last year. Lauren K. Alain hails from the twin island nation of Trinidad and Tobago. Her fiction, poetry and non-fiction have been widely published in journals and anthologies including The Atlantic, Miss Muse, Women's Studies Quarterly, Interview in the Caribbean, The Crab Orchard Review, among many others. We're now going to hear poetry from the writer Lauren K. Alain, reading from her second collection. Thank you for organizing this incredible festival, for bringing all these amazing people together. Um, Melanie is a friend of mine, and she, she gave my name into the hat, and I am grateful for it. Um, I want to start off with a poem from Difficult Fruit. We put names in the air at the beginning, and I had a godmother who left for America. And that was sort of my first sort of inkling, you know, of a, of a space that was in Trinidad. Um, and this is uh, a letter to Auntie Patsy. I can hear your laugh, the breathlessness you'd clamp your hand around your shoulders, working up and down like wings. You were my first lavish crush. The promise of summers in your new country dulled the edge of your leaving for America, where everything was made and it snowed. For years we yelled, bye-bye Auntie Patsy, every time a plane passed over the house. Those mysterious birds, nights, unsteady stars. Now I am here in the country I labeled yours before you disappeared, before the envelopes their stamps like trails stopped brightening the mailbox and the birthday bills tucked into singing cards no longer made their way to our piggy banks. Gone, the hearts above the flourish of your name. For two decades, I've imagined you here, your face hidden behind the times on the subway, your fingers dropping change in every hungry cup. Before you left, you whirled me around the living room until we collapsed giggling. We chanted the months until I would come to you like prayers. You saved our pictures. You wait and wait for me to find you. 
Um, so I, in the new book, it goes all over the place. Um, but I wanted to start with a place that if you are here, you should be familiar with, and that is outside the US Embassy. <laughs> <laughs> this is a visa villanelle. <laughs> First, the gathering of proof. Your life's story reduced to a paper jam of required documents, evidence of the right shape of your history. Surrender every expectation of privacy. Release the statements, provide your fingerprints, prove you have nothing to hide. Your life's story unremarkable in its mundane trajectory of dream, desire, struggle, overcoming, testament to the harmless shape of your history. Leave home at midnight, drive through the wee hours to arrive at the embassy door first with your gathered proof, your rehearsed story, Stand in the chilled street lit dark, pray the rosary, repeat again and again to, your, to still your heavy beating heart. You have the evidence, all the right forms. This is but a footnote in your history. Dawn, sunlight opens the day like a key. Wipe the weary from your eyes, enter. State your intent, offer the proof of your life. Tell its story, provide evidence. Give it the shape that will become your history. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't lie, right? At the event at 3 o'clock at the bookstore, there was a discussion of, um, of parents, and particularly mothers, and the, the complications of the relationship, especially when they try to leave. And that's one thing. My mother had never come to America when she let me come here at the age of 18. Um, this is my mother who never let me sleep over at anybody's house because she said you have a perfectly good bed here. I will pick you up whatever time, right? So um, I always admired whatever it is. She just recognized in me that wasn't going to stick around and she did not do all the things that a lot of my friends' mothers did to keep them. So this is an ode to my parents. Root and reach. You are the unlike likenesses haunting my mirror, possessing my throat, shout, and song. You are stalwart twin pillars holding me up, a girl made of so much air, you lose sight of her as she sighs her way into spaces you dreamed or never thought to. You who mattered me into being, you who scored ocean into my spirit, placed all my possibility into the hands of a God you cannot see, but still believe worthy of faith. How you hold me still, your disappeared daughter, your prodigal progeny, whose return you celebrate again and again, whose absence you read as testimony, not abandonment. Beloved Earth, from whom emerged this reckoning of a woman, the unfed beast of her hunger, you who pushed and planted and pruned, you who promised more than you could afford and delivered, you of the open hands and doors and hearts, you who let me take my new name, go, you who renamed yourselves, always, you who remain. Um, we were talking earlier as well about the difference in 
Black American culture and Caribbean culture and some of the absorption and tension and you know, of that relationship. Our cousins here, um, who we get mistaken for a sibling, you know, it's, it happens. And this uh, a moment of that was, um, I was talking to the poet Frank X. Walker, and he said he didn't know how to swim, and I responded with like, what, what's wrong with you? And um, <laughs> he said, there were no pools for black folks when I was coming up, which shut me up appropriately, um, and then resulted in a poem, because they can't really ever shut me up. <laughs> Variations in blue for Frank X. Walker. In Sleep's 3D theater home, a green island surrounded by the blue of ocean. Zoom to the heart, see the Kuva swimming pool filled with us. Black children shrieking our joy in a haze of sun. Our lifeguard Rodney, his skin flawless and gleaming, black as fresh oil. His strut along the pool's edge, his swoon-worthy smile. Daddy, a beach ball-bellied Poseidon, droplets diamonding his afro. My brother hollering as he jumps into air, grasp, gasping and triumphant. And there, the girl I was, dumpling thick and sun brown, stripped down to the red two-piece suit my mother had made by hand, afloat in the blue bed of water, the blue sky beaming above. When I wake up, I'm in America, where Dorothy Dandridge once emptied a pool with her pinky. And in Texas, a black girl's body draped in its hopeful tasseled bikini struck earth instead of water, a policeman's blue-clad knees pinning her back, her indigo wail, a siren. I want this to be the dream, but I am awake. And in this place, where the only blue-named home is a song, and we are meant to sink, to sputter, to drown. Um, and sometimes home is a person. Uh, I had a friend, Anton, who died five years ago at the age of 41, playing football. It was how he would have wanted to go if he picked. And um, it was a moment when I, I really come to reckon. You know, the one, I, a story about Anton, I was. Mommy picked me up from the airport going home, and there's this car following us. And we're like, there's a car following us. You can't see what's happening. And we turned into the little trace we live in, and the car turned into. So mommy's like, all right, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> and we're waiting, and then out comes Anton. And I was just like, boy, he's like, I saw your head in the car, so I follow you, right? Like, <laughs> right, that's my boy. So this is um, a gathering of light for Anton. In your face, dark as midnight, in the rasp of your voice, scratching the distance between us, oceans, cornfields, years of never enough time. In the hours we spent on the simple pleasures, bowls of hot corn soup from your favorite street vendor, cold Friday night beer swallowed under the stars, the crush of bodies in a fet with music so ecstatic it became our breathing, in our sturdy drawbridge silences in the ocean days, in the restlessness of me, my aching, endless reaching, in the unsteady vessels of my dreams, so slight the waves that carried them, so slight against the waves that carried them, in the way you were beacon, compass, and harbor, marking the place where home began, anchoring me to the solid earth of your heart, safe, in the earth now, your body, 
in what must remain, in what must be given over to memory's safekeeping, in the way the sky holds you and shines. And the last poem I'll read is going back to difficult fruits. Um, in this book, I followed my friend Damaris and I wrote a lot of a lot of letters to myself. When you talk to yourself, they commit you. When you write to yourself, you get published. Um, letter to my 15-year-old self. 15, okay, the first line requires a suspension of disbelief. 15, I'm writing from 29 to tell you we live. I remember our dreams, the long white halls with no end, and how when we tried to imagine life after convent, it was blank and solid as a grave. We thought that meant there was no future for us, and practiced accepting our absence from our own lives. No more best friendships, school dances, no more yearning for boys to whom we were already invisible. Now we are almost twice your age. The face we couldn't envisage is yours, but leaner, with shadows of mom in its profile. In two years, we will step on our first plane and fall in love with flight. We will move like wind across the world. We conjugate French class verbs in Paris and Nice. We follow Jesus to Bethlehem and Galilee. We have lived in places you do not yet know exist. I see now that it will all begin with you. The path away from home marked with nothing. Who could walk it but the girl who had already made peace with her own end? Fifteen, looking back, I understand our quiet death wait, the surprise of our persistent daily waiting. We never could have imagined this. It was a privilege to listen to Lauren K. Alain's um, poetry reading, her interaction with the audience. It's so good, the power of a, a live recording. The way her poetry deals with place and character and scenarios and turns them into lyric, but so visual that we can see it. But also, as important, the stories and the anecdotes that she tells between the poems are so engaging and alluring and humorous. It was really rewarding and, and very fulfilling to speak to um, Monique Roffrey about her seventh book, The Mermaid of Black Conch, which is out now in the shops, um, hot off the press, can be ordered from People Tree Press. And um, also to hear Lauren K. Elaine reading live from Honeyfish. Um, and you can also obtain that on People Tree Press's website for sale. Thank you for listening to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast. I'd like to end by thanking our producer, Melody Tryon, the Arts Council of England, and Theresa Lua's award for their support. Please look out for future episodes of New Caribbean Voices. I'm Malika Bokla, and I've been your presenter.